So welcome to the second episode of the Pythian School of Futures. And today we're going to speak about the mechanisms of future production and specifically the institutions that were producing futures in the history and focusing mostly on the institution that is responsible for the production of the future now, the so-called think tank, the uh, institution that claims to be the expert and to possess the expertise in forecasting, foresighting, and what we call the future production. But before we jump to the contemporary and the main focus also of our conversation today is to analyze the build-up towards that institution. What was the uh, the institution or what was the uh, different set of institutions that were the pre setting that the reign of the think tanks of the 20th century. And in order to start, we should dive back into several thousand years ago and look onto the oracular culture of the ancient civilizations. And specifically, interesting case in here is the Delphi Oracle, the oracle of the Panhellenic culture that used to be responsible for directing the decisions of the ancient Greeks in the most complicated and the most challenging times of the consultation. And the uh, think tanks of the contemporary, funnily enough, have a lot in common with the uh, Delphi Oracle, and at the same time are diametrically different from it. And through this comparison between the two modes of history, we are going to build up the argument of today. So first of all, what is the oracular culture and what was the oracle in the ancient civilizations? What oracles were performing and what was the function of the oracle? So the oracular culture, as we know it from the ancient history, was born quite a bit of time ago, around maybe 4th, 5th centuries before the common era and millennia, sorry, before the common era and maybe even earlier. But at least the archaeological remains allow us to say that uh, already back in the time of the 2nd, 3rd millennia BC, the oracles were consulted in different cultures alongside the uh, first civilizations of Eurasia. And the ancient Greek particularly case that would be our sample for today, the Delphi Oracle, was active already in the 2nd millennia before the Common Era. The oracle basically operated as the consultancy institution, a temple, where the group of the priests that was comprised of, to the uh, in the moment of its pinnacle of around hundred people, were setting up a ritual around the oracular channel of connection with the divine power that was meant to consulted by the choir who comes to the temple. And in specifically in Delphi, that oracle was named Pythia. It was a woman over the whole period of time, different type of woman over this period of time as well. And the, the mechanism of selection of Pythia and the mechanism of the approach of Pythia by the priest and interpretation of her prophecies also by the priest was changing over the time. But something that was more or less permanent and exactly interesting for our inquiry is what exactly function was assigned to the predictions of the Pythia and the prediction of the oracle. 
So basically, the leaders, political leaders of ancient Greece were coming to Delphi and coming to the Temple of Apollo, where the Pythia was seated, to ask not yes or no questions, but rather either or questions to Pythia. They were asking, for example, whether they should go to war with a specific country or a specific neighboring polis. They were asking whether they should go and found the colony somewhere else and establish the settlement. They were asking sometimes in the private realm, for example, questions whether they should pass the inheritance to their children or to their wife or to their husband, uh, which is, of course, the quite rare case in the sense that that was a very patriarchally dominated society. But in any way, the spouse was often asking questions about the other spouse. And mostly it was men asking about the fidelity of women or men asking about whether they should pass their wealth to their children. So the range of the questions was quite diverse. And again, it's not really the focus of our conversation now, but it's rather what was the mode of asking that question and what was, what was the context of asking that question. And the context disregards the scale of the issue that was brought by the inquirer was actually very much uniform. The scale was what is it to be done with the future and who can give me the legitimacy to act in one or another way in order to embody that future. And that didn't really matter in a sense for Pythia whether the question was posed in relation to a, an empire or in relation to a particular household, for example. And the oracular culture in that sense was not only present in the ancient Greece. So the people asking that questions and coming to the oracle and posing the dilemmas about direction of their actions uh, were not only Delphi-specific. The oracles were existing in such a place like Dodona, as well in ancient Egypt. There are some as well indications that oracular culture was popular as well and was present in the cultures of Mesopotamia. So the oracular culture basically was present as a network in the ancient world. And the ancient world, in that sense, used the oracular technology as a viral technology of approaching the future. You could basically compare the oracular culture to the other form of the institutions that are present in contemporary and to help us to decide on the specific strategic matters. For example, if you look at strategic consultancies like McKinsey or Accenture uh, that are using the uniform methodologies whenever they are asked to provide their expertise and their advice on specific strategic involvement of the agent, they basically act in the same way as the oracular culture, as a specific oracles were addressing the needs of the kings and political leaders and tribal leaders and individuals in the ancient world. So important takeaways from the oracular culture in, in order to bring it further into the historical context, into the involvement of the approach towards the future is to, to emphasize that the oracles were creating future. Oracles were not asked to predict what is going to happen in the future. So basically the question that the king or the tribal leader was posing to the oracle was already based on the specific problem being analyzed by that inquirer. So the agency, in the end, with oracular predictions, what is very interesting, lays in the hands of actually the inquirer, not in the hands of 
the institution that provides that prophecy. It's not the oracle, basically, that gives you a very specific indication of the root. Oracle just indicates, indicates the way, the vector, in direction of which the thinking of the inquirer is important to be grounded around. So the uh, another important point of the oracular culture of the past is its connection to theology and its connection to religion. Because again, the pro prophecies of the uh, Delphic Oracle, for example, were read in the Temple of Delphi, in the Temple of Apollo of Delphi. The production of the future was therefore produced in the theological context, in the ritualistic context. So the production of the future was a ritual, a ritual which basically was a performing a function of gluing the community. Because as soon as this ritual was performed, everybody around was agreeing that the future is being produced. So it was indicating the clue towards coming out of the stasis, of the coming out of the situation where the people are not able to make the decision on the rational terms or cannot themselves basically set up a context within which they could proceed with the planning for the future. So the oracle was playing that role of breaking the deadlock in the societies by providing the another clue, basically another step or a vector towards which the question about the future could be reoriented and therefore the decision could be made by the people themselves. So further going in history, basically, how we can connect and compare the oracular culture to uh, what was happening further after the collapse of the ancient Greek civilization and following further into the history of Europe in the, in the Middle Ages. So we all, of course, are familiar and we all see the uh, multiplicity of popularity of astrology, for example, in the uh, horoscopic predictions. And the horoscopes are still a very, in a way, popular way of approaching personal future. Horoscopes and the interpretation as well of the zodiac signs and interpretation of what zodiac signs mean in relation to another uh, celestial, for example, agents or it relations to any other forms of the way and the ways to analyze and predict own behavior or the context around uh, also was born actually in the ancient times. But in the ancient times, it was not specifically playing that role that it started to play with the arrival of the Middle Ages because the oracular culture collapsed. Oracular culture specifically disappeared because it was theological, because it was very much connected to religion. And that function was taken over by the monotheistic religions. In Europe, it was the Christian churches. And in further Eurasia, it was, it was other uh, monotheistic religions like Islam, for example. And basically, the legitimacy of the oracle in a sense of being that theological agent that is responsible for the production of the future was lost. But the need, finally enough, for the inquiry about the future, of course, did not go anywhere because it's a very anthropological and I would try to avoid, of course, using the word natural, but it's a very organic way of inquiry within the human being and the logic of the society and within the logic of the person as well about thinking about future. And it's also a problematic institution to approach on the person, the personal capacity. So they need to be an infrastructure that is essential for asking that question. So astrology, that again rooted in the ancient culture, somewhat by chance or by the reasons that we probably would, we would never know, taken over in part that focus that was structured around the oracular culture before. So the court astrologist, basically, became a very, very popular position around the European nobility, for example.
the almost all the European kings of the period of time from the from the Middle Ages up to actually now started to hire the court astrologists and use them basically in a similar capacity as you would use the ancient oracles with, with inquiry about the context and provision of rather a set of circumstances within which the agent will make decision himself or herself. So the astrology was, of course, not the only one character, let's say, in that play, not the only one institution that uh, was replacing the oracular, oracular uh, consultations. For example, the proliferation of the tarot cards and proliferation of magic and witches and any kind of special ways of special folkloric almost characters that started to fulfill the need for production of that space within which the decision about the future could be made, started to grow in a very diverse ways all around different cultures in the world, after the countries that we know. So in some forms it was the Mag or the Magog or, or the form of this specific mystic that was present in either the society or in the specific royal courts. And what is interesting, all of those minor institutions and all of those specific characters that were performing their role, they all coexisted together with uh, such institutions like church that, of course, did not make anything out of future, in a sense, because, of course, the future that was proposed by the theology, by the new theology, was rather set. As soon as you're dying in the Christian church, in the Christian religion, for example, you're meant to end up in a better world, it's the same as in Islam. So basically, you should not be concerned about future from the perspective of theology. You have to be only concerned about your present and current actions, and these present and current actions have to be subdued to the specific moral and ethical code that is dictated by the holy book of one or another kind. And that uh, sort of interesting way of, and, and a function of theology, uh, sort of put the theology outside of the scope of the competition for the future, because the theology was not concerned with anthropological future. So as soon as you find yourself to be a little bit unconvinced by the teaching of the church, you needed basically to find another institution where you could be able to acquire that peace of mind and that context within which you need to make decisions about, about your future, the strategic decisions, and find somewhere outside that institution and that person that will allow you to, to ask another question about yourself, to recontextualize your life and recontextualize the challenge or the issue or the problem, uh, similar to the crosses pro crisis problem, for example, of entering the empire. The whole institution uh, institution of, ma of, of these magical beings, let's say, and all, all of those mystics, funnily enough, is the consequence of the uh, uninterests from the organized religion to the concept of the future. So fast forwarding a bit further from the Middle Ages to the age of epistemology, which is called sometimes the Enlightenment or the Rational Age, the, uh, another important historical change is happening around that time, at, the, at, around the, at around the time when religion comes criticized by institutions of knowledge, uh, institution of independent rational knowledge that starts to question all the presuppositions about both the uh, structure and the nature of the world as we inhabit it and the nature of the man as well and, nature, and the place of the man on the earth. And that, and that mostly bombarded the uh, 
church's basically ignorance towards the concept of the future because the belief in this eternal life that is proposed to the dogmatic and true believer by the church uh, became more and more questioned and more and more doubted by larger and larger groups of population with a further rationalization of the society. And the expert institutions at that moment become interested in production of the future through the institutions basically of the rational thoughts. And of course, at that moment, we all remember the uh, phenomena, for example, such as alchemy, phenomena, again, witchcraft, phenomena of those mystics that were present at that time. They start to be as well approached by the emerging academias and universities and the inquiry of knowledge. So what exactly does it mean to ask these people, for example, about the future? Maybe there is another way to do that in a more rational way. So basically, arrival of the rationalism questioned both of these institutions at the same time. And both of them, in a sense, struggled from, the, from being criticized by the, by the institution of the rational thought. And that exactly is when our modern story starts. Because around the 17th, 18th century, with the emergence of the strong first universities that actually were participating already in decision-making and were consulted by, widely by the, by the political decision-makers and by the community decision-makers, they start to be an actors in production of the future. And beyond that, again, 19th century brings us another important actor in future production. And that's, that actor is empire or the nation state. At the moment when basically the idea of the national identity and the idea of specific presence and existence of specific path of the nation state is being discussed very widely and is being used propagandistically in order to justify such agencies and such actions as a colonialism, as imperial wars, as expansion. So the idea of a specific vision of the future and creation of the sun castle, as we were referring the pilot episode, uh, is becoming essential for the sake of creation of the specific vision of that society, rational vision of this society in the future, 50 years from now, 100 years from now, and so on. And that promissory lens is, from that perspective, very different from the theological promissory lens that was proposed by the Christianity. Christianity did not, for example, in churches up to until now, and especially then, were not, of course, creating the vision of the future for the very specific national heavens. There was not national heaven of papal states, national heaven of Austrian empire, or national heaven of whatever, anything else. There was one heaven where everybody ends up. So therefore, every, of course, proper Christian ends up. So therefore, there was no necessity to create a specific national idea of the future, or a specific idea of the future society, which the person would want to inhabit in order to support the political system. The inquiry, therefore, became completely different. The, basically, rationalization of society brought in this context of proposition and creation of the future image of the specific national type. So you could say, basically, again, building the logical red thread through the historical process that the further inheritant of this demand for inquiry about the future, demand for conversation and recontextualization of now in order to imagine different uh, paths that could lead to a variety of the futures became the nation state. And nation state at that moment started to innovate a lot with how that future could be communicated. So 19th century and 18th century, but mostly 19th century, are 
also becoming time and a period of the birth of patriotic propagandistic arts, for example, and usage of the art for the aesthetic or political purposes, for a communication of the idea of national identity, idea of the national destiny, idea of a specific fate that nation is meant to fulfill over the time, which is, again, in itself, the idea that has quite, uh, quite a theological roots. But these theological roots were very much rationalized. So basically, the nation state started to build up a specific plan to arrive to that heaven that is proposed and promised to the population for the sake of this population belief and legitimacy of the political regime which they inhabit and also their motivation of them to invest in the agencies that allow the growth of those nation states agencies such as already mentioned before like a colonialism for example or imperialistic wars or justification of specific expansions and wars so that period of the nation state sort of fateful development could be prolonged and could be described as state of play up to until the collapse of the uh, societies which was triggered by a huge colonial redistribution taking form of the first world war and then the second world war so after the second world war basically the situation in the world changed drastically and the the situation changed to the extent of existence and entrance into the field of the political play of the very, very important invisible agent. And that invisible agent name is ideology. The ideology became the state of play for starting from 1945 up to until the collapse of Soviet Union in 1999 in definition of how the future could be imagined. Would it be capitalistic future uh, that is driven by the uh, values of liberalism, pronounced democracy, a freedom of uh, individual as well and as the core basically value of it the free market as well and the accumulation of capital or it would be dictated by the alternative idea of that future of that paradise that would be built by the ideology by the communist ideology where the money would be abolished there will be one global state will not have a private property and where everybody will get what they need and work as much as they can basically uh, in the equal manner so, of course, I'm very much simplifying this ideological ideas, but you get a drift. So basically, those two ideas replaced the national fate ideas, basically, that preceded them. And this sort of beacon of hope that was provided by to the populations of different empires in a sense of where exactly their nation would arrive in relation to a creation of the promissory heaven on earth. So the new heaven on earth was proposed by the ideologists, by the ideologies of capitalism and communism. And it, that's exactly the period of time where the institutional think tank is being born. The first modern institution of the think tank and the use basically of the word think tank is becoming present. So the first think tank could be referred in the history as the institution called the Rand Corporation. That think tank was established in the United States and uh, it was exactly this institution, this basically consultancy, state consultancy slash research institute that called itself first a think tank 
Why a think tank again? Think tank basically means that it's a tank, basically indeed, it's a military equipment, but this is a tank that does not shoot with metal or whatever, any kind of other weaponry. It shoots with thoughts, it shoots with ideas. It it's exactly supports this heavenly concept of the ideology with the shrapnel that it's basically shelling its enemies with in the form of the ideas that debunk the other alternative form of the future. So in that sense, the shrapnel and the sort of the bombardment that the Iran corporation was involved in, in attacking the Soviet Union, was the bombardment of ideas of communism, debunking the ideas of communism, as, for example, being illogical, as being unachievable, as being simply stupid and totalitarian and therefore existentially dangerous. And uh, finally enough, there was no counter-institution of that kind being created from the Soviet Union part. And we could even argue that maybe that was one of the reasons why Soviet Union, a part of, again, the whole economic narrative in there, but again, the think tank run corporation was founded in, right in the beginning of the Cold War. So the strategy of uh, the, uh, the capitalism in, in weaponizing the ideas was not exactly paralleled by the Soviet powers, which preferred to use the rather technical techniques of much less indirect form of organization of these ideas and the critical attack on the capitalism. And the Rand Corporation, interestingly, and again, very innovatively, started to use the variety of different uh, forms of the support of this bombardment and the variety of different of this shrapnel. It was shelling the uh, solid idea of the heaven created by the Soviet Union, which included art, for example, again, we know that the uh, roots of the American abstract art movement are coming from the investments which were put into the art institutions and also stipends that were paid to the artists like Jackson Pollock, for example, by the CIA on the recommendation of the Rand Corporation that thought that this idea of the promissory future of that heaven, capitalist heaven, is beautifully materialized and beautifully represented and symbolized through the movements like abstract art. And the po popularization of abstract art would create an additional platforming foundation for the capitalist society to advertise itself, basically, and to prove, to sell, basically, the concept of the future and the idea of that promissory future to the population of the, not only United States, but, but the global population. And uh, again, fast-forwarding that story to its end, this strategy proved to be effective. And by the end of 1980s, the Soviet Union started to crumble, and not only economically, but also morally. Morally, in a sense that the idea of this paradise possibility by being provided and being built by the communism dissipated. It's disappeared. Basically, the irony took over Soviet Union um, and irony took over the idea of possibility of that paradise created by the Soviet Union. The Soviet youth of 1970s and 80s wanted to wear jeans and listen to the Western music. And exactly that institution of the soft power was created by that intelligent way of approaching the creation of that promissory future by the think tanks. And although Think Tank as an institution was born in the United States and the first one was Rand Corporation, basically the success of this enterprise was of course not going unnoticed and other agents of political spectrum started to replicate that institution and create its own Think Tanks. 
most of them being called the research institutes and somehow being built out of or somehow being sprangled out of the different universities and different consultancies. Uh, because again, referring to what I was talking before, we remember that the rational thought already took over the idea of the mystical and the ritual production of the future, basically, in the age of the Enlightenment. So by the moment of the collapse of the Soviet Union, basically, and the establishment of the Russian Federation on the basis of the, uh, the same promissory future of the capitalism, the world found itself in a very flat, uniform environment where basically the promissory heaven on earth was only possible to be built with one structure of the moral premise and with one structure of the elements of desirability and those values that could be embodied in a very specific set of resources, such as capital, again, individual freedom, democracy, liberalism, and you name it. Further, further several, further basically list of the advantages of the neoliberal, Western neoliberal societies. And the concept of growth in that sense, again, and the concept of where the future leads us and what the future means, in a sense, was also unified after 90s. Basically, the idea of economic growth being a panacea from all the possible ills in the world, from the lack of freedom and democracy to child mortality and disease control, basically took over the world like a storm after the collapse of the Soviet Union. The institutions such as World Bank, International Monetary Fund, they became basically these, uh, which, uh, by the way, as well in themselves, could be classified as think tanks, at least in part of their activity, because they do provide exactly sort of the, the fundamental columns to that temple of the capitalistic future towards which we're all now heading towards to within our own little national units. But basically, this reinstitution of the common heaven, somewhat unequal common heaven in a way, is again recreated. So that's not it's not the two different sort of points of the arrival as it was in the point of the Cold War. Then we were talking about multiplicity of this point. But at this particular point in the history, we are living in a present that leaves, leads us towards this unified idea of the heaven in which we could have a very basically a different class at the arrival into this heavenly structure. And basically, again, unification of that future to other troubling recontextualizations of idea of the future. First of all, the idea of the foresight and the idea of production of the future, basically the idea of us being the agents of the future. Remember again, the crosses, this king that I was talking about in the ancient, uh, in the context of the ancient Delphic Oracle, despite the fact that he received the prophecy from the, the divine prophecy from seemingly the priestess that communicated with gods, it was his decision to make, to either invade Persia or stay in his borders. It was his interpretation to give. While actually, funnily enough, in our case and the work of, with the, of the think tanks of contemporaneity that are providing us the advice and producing basically those predictions of the future based on numbers and based on the, on the models, mathematical data-driven models, we don't have that freedom anymore. We are meant to follow that data science that is meant to define the best course of action for us. And unless we don't follow exactly what is done and produced, 
by those institutions that are reproducing again this ideological again not the not some sort of defined by science or defined by by knowledge structure but ideological structure of values that is dictated by the idea of growth and so on we are just meant to follow it in case we are rational beings and this is the incredibly troubling situation of today where future is not being basically produced but it's being predicted and it doesn't mean at all that future is not being produced by no one it just means that future is being produced only by the institutions that are either sponsoring think tanks or the institutions that are initiating the think tanks in themselves because the think tanks and production of the further the uh, a particular straits and particular strategies of the future being evolved down the line are just communicating the state of play and communicating the plan of action to us for example, to us as, as uh, inhabitants of the world of today, as just basically the path that we are supposed to follow if we are rational. And we are, if we are not following that path that is given to us, we are, I don't know, we are renegades, pirates, communists, anarchists, queer, weirdos, whatever, basically. But uh, we are outside of that structure of the prediction as soon as you are not aligning with it. And that's a very, very important point in a sense of understanding of where we are at and why this, for example, podcast is initiated also in part, because exactly the realization just of the point that indeed the matrix exists, actually, but this matrix is very much created by the another agents of humanity as us, but just not being controlled by us in any form or way and, and provides us only with a very simplistic binary choice of being the part of it or just being outside of it, therefore not being geared and plugged in in the whole resource system, that it's structured around that arbitrary, basically, and very much accumulation-driven structure of values that is that accumulation-driven by, of course, a smaller group of people rather than versus a larger group of people. This is a very, very important undertone of seeing the difference between the ancient society of that, that was focused on the freedom of the production of the future versus the contemporary think tanks-based society that is basically producing the predetermined path of us following the future and following it further, further and further because those uh, sort of uh, long-term strategic plans are written for 20, 30 generation-wise uh, timing where we don't have anything to say about basically the possibility of redefining that future and we are meant just to follow that uh, structure of the future production. And I will just end as well on the uh, maybe the last and the most fancy and the most popular and uh, somewhat fashionable term that is also used in the academia and specifically loved by the think tanks and the governments producing this this very much predetermined plans for us of the production of the future is the term big data basically the big data that that follows the possibility of the technological giants such as Facebook and Google and governments themselves through basically electronization of the bureaucracy as well of collecting the massive sets of data on the population and then using this data sets predict again the future. This is a very interesting, very important point to make as well because this prediction of the future 
is becoming again a production of the future, just like in the ancient world. But this production of the future is done in a vertical form and way. It's the data set that is basically defining your future on the basis of today. It's not presuming that the action of those people who are being uh, tracked and whose actions are being aggregated in the data sets, that they actually can behave differently tomorrow, or they can behave differently in five years or 10 years and so on. It presumes that these forms of behavior are permanent and they're stalled. So therefore, the reproduction of the data sets and reproduction and usage of the data sets of that kind by the think tanks and by the governments leads basically to the constant reproduction of the everlasting present as the goal of those predictory models. And that's a very, very troubling reality of today, which basically cancels all the possible alternative futures. And this cancellation of the possible alternative futures becomes more and more radical. And the, the window of exiting this basically sort of amalgamation of data sets that leave less and less possibility for us to act differently, to basically not to board the bus on the way to work and go to the museum instead and make sort of a random decision that is not really dependent on your productivity being analyzed at every moment of the time. Those sort of radical gestures <laughs> becoming radical even at the point of this sort of a very toothless example that I just gave in a form of, for example, just not going to a meeting and instead of it going to a, a leisure spot. Uh, the quantification of everything, including quantification of our physical activity, quantification of our time, the work, our guilt that is relating to the ineffective time, for example, and guilt relate and the uh, specific time sets that is the device for hobbies and, and also professionalization of hobbies that are somehow meant to be integrated with the whole point of the professional activity. These are all the consequences, basically, of that big data set operation being deeper and deeper and deeper engaged with the cancellation of the alternative future. Moreover, the institutions, for example, the Google just recently involved in the in creation of the institution within institutions with the names such as Happiness Institute, for example, where happiness becoming a commodified, somewhat data analyzable structure and institution. So therefore, the escapability from that structure and the escapability from this from this very tracked form of reproduction of the present and basically analysis of the present as the already sort of utopia somewhat materialized, but utopia that only can be somewhat tweaked, a little bit changed, battered, but not changed, is the situation that is in part a consequence of the work of the think tanks with the concept of the future as the extension of the everlasting present. So for Today, that is it, and I'm looking forward to seeing you in the next episode that would be devoted to the power cards and to the concept of power in, in contemporary. And our school will proceed further in analysis of the concept of power of now uh, and in relation to the alternative futures. Thank you very much.